Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monk. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia <laughs> page? It's good to practice. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great question. If you say he was my age, I'm going (laughs) to fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. (laughs) Available on all your podcast apps. That's not right. Uh, Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right. (laughs) The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. crazy youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of chart music the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of top of the pops i'm your host i'll need them but so fucking what it's all about my guests not my guests my fucking partners how dare i deem <laughs> these people as guests those people are neil kulkarna hello there Al. and taylor parks hello boys team atv land if you will you will tell me now of the pop and interesting things that have occurred of late. Well, well, like I mean, like most people and like most uh, listeners, I'm sure I've been losing my fucking mind of late, mm. um, going slowly mad. But um, one thing I've noticed is that I've heard from a lot of people that uh, a kind of recurrent phrase, which is, "Oh, I've been saving a lot of money during lockdown." Mm. Um, I've been kind of combating that of late by just buying utterly pointless shit off the internet. Oh, um, yes. I've already rotated through things that I can vaguely justify, you know. So I've bought a drum kit and I'm going to buy a mm. keyboard and I've joined the ranks of cheating guitarists by buying a capo as well. Ooh. But um, I'm now just getting daily packages of just pointless shit because, I mean, we're all <laughs> spending, you know, dawn till dusk basically on our phones and yeah. <laughs> where a lot of people are looking at 5G conspiracies, etc. I'm just looking at shit Facebook ads and buying pointless shit. So I now own um, a stethoscope. Um, Ooh, why? Well, it's it's been a long, long-held want, to be honest with you, that I've always wanted to listen to my stomach. Um, <laughs> you know, because it makes a lot of noise where, uh, after whatever I've eaten, because I eat a lot of trash. And um, it's just tantalising. So um, I just I, I spent like 10 quid on a stethoscope. <laughs> and now, I've got to admit, most of my evenings are spent 
listening to the the it's like sort of Pierre Schaefer produced by King Tubby what goes on in my stomach <laughs> can you record it for us I'll, I'll give it a go mate yeah everyone should get one there's symphonies going on inside of you the body is an amazing sound factory so so that's one thing I've got and and one thing I've also got that I'm not wearing at the moment perhaps I should have worn it is um a posture corrector um, right. which which it, look it was an advert it appealed because i've i've spent my whole life getting slapped on the back by various women in my life telling me to stand up straight and um this Shoulders thing back lovely boy yeah this is it so oh, this thing, by the the music industry generally well <laughs> done neil we appreciate it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this is like this sort of humiliating harness um, that you put yourself in. And the trouble is you can't actually put yourself in it yourself. So you do have to ask somebody to strap you in to a certain extent, Um, a process that repulses my daughter immensely. Um, But I've got to say, it does does work. I've got to put my dad's reverse bra on every morning. Well, quite. Uh, It does work. It has been making me stand up straight. It does have like 47 years of slack to battle um mm. so it's going to take some time and uh, obviously within a couple of hours chafing issues are paramount but um i think it works it hurts anyway it must be working so yeah that's what i've been doing pointless shit off the internet i bought one of those the other week <laughs> 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 i did with a with a target demographic and i'm wearing it now you're wearing it yes just a spate of photos popped up on Facebook <laughs> of me sitting in pubs back in the olden times. Mm. And I'm like a fucking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and not in a good way, man. I'm just hunched over <laughs> like a fucking poisoned rat. I'm just thinking, oh, well, this this is not going to get me any uh, sexy lady action, is it? Mm. Looking mm. like this. So I thought, you know. This was my thoughts as well. Before, before I went full quasi, you know, yeah. I just wanted to stand up straight. And I must admit, when I put it on for the first time, it's like, oh, blooming heck, I am tall, aren't I? Yes. Look at the height up here. Look at um, my perky it's- breasts. <laughs> It's weather. I mean, the the key thing is, good on you, for having it on right now. Um, I've got to admit, I haven't had it on today, so I've oh, got to make Neil. that daily that daily sacrifice. I Are think. you going to go out in public with it on? I've already been out in public with oh. it on because I know you can wear it outside your garments, which looks a bit foolish as far as I'm concerned. Well, just but... imagine that you've got a gun <laughs> strapped to you on the inside, uh, it, Neil. It very much has got that Travis Bickle thing to it. Yeah, but, exactly. But... Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but no, um, I've been keeping it underneath um, garments, which which obviously changes what you can wear because just a simple T-shirt can reveal this strange man-bra thing. Yes. Um, so you've got to be careful. But yeah, yeah, I've got to stay dedicated to it, Al. We, yeah. we, can, be, we can be posture corrector buddies yes, and G each other that. up on this score. <laughs> <laughs> uh, form a bubble. Yes. That's all the rage. <laughs> Taylor, yeah. you were loaned out, weren't you, the other week to the, the One Show show? Yeah, but it, it means nothing. Well done, mate. Right, excellent performance. <laughs> yeah, I haven't Slag. heard it yet. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. Oh, well, I don't yeah. like the sound of my own voice, you know. You were fucking brilliant, Tony, mate. Jeez. Didn't fucking plug chart music, though, did well, you? Well, I told them to do it. I thought it'd be... The a... whole point of the fucking thing. Did they not mention it? Taylor, that was your job. Was it? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I thought it'd be a bit unseemly. <laughs> At no point did I hear you banging a drum shouting chartmusic.co.uk. Well. That's the whole point of these things. <laughs> Actually, me, you and David are on the When Saturday Comes podcast pretty soon, aren't we? For the 400th issue of When Saturday Comes. Oh, yeah. I mentioned chart music quite a lot, actually. Well, good. Well done, Al. Yeah. Cross-platform brand synergisation. Exactly. That's what it's all about. Yeah. 
I'm surprised I could remember anything, to be honest. I cannot tell a lie. I'm starting to go a bit mad now, being locked down yeah. this long. Um, it's, I mean, people moan that they've completed some box set. Right? I think I'm now on the verge of completing YouTube, which I, I'm less <laughs> proud of than I should be, really. Um, I've gone past all the stuff I used to watch, like, you know, weather forecasts from 1979 and, like, footage of yeah. old caravan sites and stuff. A lot of the stuff that is apparently enjoyed by the general public. And now I understand mm. what's happened to the world over the last 10 years or so because this is yeah. brain rot is completely hypnotic. Um, it gets ever yeah. more soothing <laughs> as life around us deteriorates. Right, First, I got into watching... These videos called things like Americans react to British snacks. Oh, <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> epidemic of this. It's just endless clips of non-personalities sat in their kitchen with bags of monster munch going <laughs> like, oh my God, I, I heard about Cadbury chocolate. And they just, they get everything wrong. And you can't reach through the screen yeah, to correct them. them. Yeah, you just have to sit watching them mm. eating digestives without a cup of tea. You yeah, know what I mean, they've just got a little bottle of water there. Mm. <laughs> going, oh, it's kind of dry. It's like, yeah, but it's because it's, it's like you're eating a cup of soup without any water in it. It's, the, oh, the, the best or uh, the worst was this lad who got really excited about Ribena because they don't have black currants in America, I found no. out. They mm. were banned until the 60s because they can carry a fungus which wipes out pine trees. So it saved <laughs> the American timber industry. They banned black currants. Really? And when that ban was, yeah, and then when that ban was lifted in the 60s, they never caught on. So they don't have Ribena in America. So this wow. kid's there going, I've heard about this stuff. Oh, I can't wait to try it. And he just takes the lid off and starts chugging it. <laughs> he drinks about a quarter of a bottle. And then he wipes his lips and goes, whoa, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the thing yeah. I hate about it, they've all got the same sort of um, screen grab on the front, which is an American person looking absolutely gobsmacked by, mm. I don't know, Clomper mm. Castle. <laughs> I know. Well, the thing is, you don't get anything out of it. Because, like, we all say, oh, yeah, I want to see what... It's this sort of yeah. narcissistic, like, uh, Derek Jameson. Do they mean us? Yeah. They surely do. Like, you want to know what... Uh, it appeals to all your worst instincts, right? Mm. You want to hear what people are saying about you. Mm. Um, but you get nothing, because these people have got nothing to contribute. Mm. And you realise that whatever anyone says about the democratisation of opinion, the democratisation of criticism is a terrible thing mm. and the end point of that is just me sat in my house watching a couple of twats eating hobnobs yeah. in <laughs> scranton pennsylvania <laughs> and i'm waiting for this articulation of their culinary culture shock and all they ever say they eat it and then they go mm, that's pretty good don't forget to click like on the video, yes. subscribe to my channel, here's my Patreon. And it's like it's like the internet has brought the whole world into my front room, cap in hand. Yeah. And they're boring. And then <laughs> you you look at the thing underneath and it says like 908,000 subscribers. I know. Mm. They're going, now let's mm. get it up to a million, like as if we're all in this together. Right? Yeah. Come on, everyone, we can get it up to a million. <laughs> yeah. A million people watching an American eating a biscuit. 
Yeah. <laughs> we do a podcast which is essentially British people react to an old episode of Top of the Pops. <laughs> but for fuck's sake, we're a bit better than that, surely. Yeah, at least we're not just sitting there eating in front of people. No. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, I, and I moved on from that to those Americans Visit London clips <laughs> oh. where like, it's just like homemade travelogues of people's holidays. Mm. And I'm thinking, okay, they've got nothing to say about curly whirlies, but... <laughs> Maybe it will be more exciting. Because, I mean, neither have I, let's face mm-hmm. it. So let's see if they got something more interesting to say about the city. But no, because they, they only stay in Zone 1, which yeah. nowadays is not really London. It's like England world. Mm. Yes. Know, it's like done up like a Harry Potter theme park for tourists because that's the only thing Americans associate with Britain now <laughs> and it's the only thing they're interested in. Mm. So I just spent all these hours watching shitty-looking, juddering phone footage of grey skies and stuff and... With the this terrible stock piano music tinkling away underneath, because I think it makes it look more professional. So I have like this horrendous MIDI fake piano noodling. Oh. You know, and again, they got nothing to contribute. They go to Westminster Abbey and they go, "Oh, well, there it is." <laughs> it's like, yeah, I could have could have experienced this myself by typing Westminster Abbey into Google Images, then shaking the screen a bit <laughs> while on hold to a provincial nursing home. And the, the only thing they're interested in, they go to King's Cross fucking station to look at a sign on the wall announcing a platform which doesn't even exist. Oh, yeah. And, and they go to Nando's. That's the other thing. They, <laughs> wow. They've heard about They're really excited. They go, Guys, I'm super excited. I'm, we're going to Nando's. It's like people from New Orleans where you get better chicken than that out of a bin. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> they think it's fucking amazing. Obviously, what you need to do, Taylor, is set up your own YouTube channel called Taylor Parks Reacts to Americans Reacting to Things. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, a photograph of me with no expression. <laughs> yes. And the mouth moves and it goes, click like on the video. Yeah. It does seem to be mainly one way, those videos, i.e. Americans reacting to our stuff and Americans yeah. not being that fussed about our reaction to their stuff. And, well, because and- they know what we're going to tell them, it's... It's a fucking cod, and it's shit. Yeah. It is our worst instincts. It's that neediness um, mm. that we had. I mean, with that Derek Jameson program, it's the same thing. We need that validation still. Yeah. And, I mean, to be honest with you, it's that worst instinct that I think is also appealed to with that genre of YouTube videos where it's, um, I don't know, young black hip-hop fan listens to Pink Floyd for the first time. Yes. yes. You know, those yeah. videos. Oh. oh, wow, a black person likes white music. Wow, isn't that delightful and delicious? Yeah, and he's blown away by the musicianship. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you never get uh, videos called white indie fan reacts to Sly and the Family Star. <laughs> no. Just, it, well, they don't, obviously they don't have the melodic sophistication. Of the <laughs> The thing about those videos, though, the the kids in those videos are shrewd because they've worked something out, which is that most white rock fans or a lot of white rock fans don't have any black friends, Mm. but they would like some Mm. because they're not racist. They just don't know any black people. Yeah, yeah. And they've also worked out that secondarily, if those people did have black friends, the first thing they would want to do with their black friends is play them white rock music <laughs> yeah. of the 60s, 70s, and to a lesser extent, 80s and 90s. Oh. Yeah, what, what, what do you think of that then? What's gone? What, what, listen to this one. <laughs> the one I'd love to see on YouTube is Jamaicans reacting to reggae like it used to be and the doolies. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fucking amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> but I can't slag this stuff off too much because it's i'm surviving mm. on that and uh, and four roses bourbon which is a really nice drink 
little known fact, four roses bourbon actually named in honour of the pop group Vanilla, who surely no. captured the hearts of a nation. As in no way, no way. Mano, mano. Yeah, don't get fresh with them. <laughs> no. Is that true? Of course it's not fucking true. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they were around in 1883 as the oh, okay, all right. I don't fucking know. Boast. I don't know anything anymore in this crazy new normal. <laughs> One thing I do know, however, that this is the moment in the episode where we stop, we drop, we bow the knee, and we praise to the skies the latest batch of pop craze Patreon people. And this month, those people are in the $5 section. David English, Wang Chung Lung, <laughs> Simon Wagstaff, Steve Duffer, Michael Burke, Chris Durden, Dave Caffrey, Mike Conyard, Ross Hawkins, George Schilling, Rich Simisker, Phil Bolton, Colin Callanish, Parso, Chitanka Dodwalla, Emily McQuaid, Anthony Stenson, Mark Lasua, Simon Rooks, Sivi Negrick, and Andy McLeod. Thank you, babies. Oh, yeah. Go on, then. Thank you. Yeah, them. thank you. Yeah, it's thanks. amazing to hear Michael Burke taking a break from his moral maze duties to throw $5 down our G-string. Mm. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Not, not the first time he's tried to help out starving people. <laughs> <laughs> and in the $3 section, we have Gordy McNair, Tim Daler, David Cray, Alistair Brown, and Mark Lewis. Your names are down, and you are coming in. <laughs> And Doug Grant and Matt Varel, you are getting special thanks for jacking your donation up and above and over and beyond the odds. Whoa. You get to come in the back one. (laughs) Yes. So, if you want to join those lovely special people and you want the full episode of Chart Music in one go without having to listen to adverts for piss pads and God knows what else, you get them little fingers over to the keyboard, you step up to the pay window, you tap in patreon.com slash chartmusic and you pledge. Do you get them adverts? When I listen to chart music on ACAS, I always get the piss pad adverts. It's really unsettling. I don't get the piss pad ones, no. Yeah, you're a younger generation to me, you see. You're still in your 40s. No, I think it's already been sorted, mate, because um, back when Tenor Men were giving away free samples, my children thoughtfully applied for a box um, (laughs) for me, which arrived. How kind of them. I've kept them, obviously, because they're going to be useful at some point. (laughs) Nosebleeds and whatnot. I'm pissing myself. It's not that far away. Well, yeah, that too, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's worrying though, man. I mean, the advertising algorithms on my own fucking podcast keep telling me to stop pissing myself. And I don't. My bladder is tight as a drum, pop craze youngsters. Everyone assumes that the the minute you wake up on your 50th birthday, you, your mattress is awash with piss. <laughs> Did you get it's your free pen? awful, man. Sorry? Did you get your free pen with your life insurance plan when you hit 50? Because that's no, that is fucking what I'm that, looking no. forward to. Oh, I'm going to get that done. And people start asking about your fucking funeral as well. Have you planned for your funeral yet? It's like, no, I'll be dead. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Chuck me in the bin wagon. I don't give a toss. Yeah, I was impressed uh, the day after uh, all the... the- coronavirus stuff got really serious i just started getting adverts on my facebook telling me to make a will mm. <laughs> it's like i'm at facebook you don't know me as well as you think <laughs> make a will for what cast lots and of course 
all those pop craze patrons get to tinker with the latest chop music top 10. Shall we have it, chaps? Oh, yes, please. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye this week to the English Rock Defence League, Lion Bellend, the Bummers Conga, and last week's number one, Chip Pan's People, which means one up, four down, one no change, and four new entries. Down two places from number eight to number ten, it's Dave D, Creeper, Twat, and Cunt. It's a three-place drop for this week's number nine, Jeff Sex. Last week's number two, this week's number eight, Romo Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> Down from number four to number seven, here comes Jism. Dinosaur. <laughs> Going up four places from number 10 to number 6, Lesbian Door Factory. The first new entry of the week comes straight in at number 5, Flaky Pastry. (laughs) (laughs) A new entry at number 4, Frumpe Pumpe. (laughs) Into the top 3 and no change for Bummer Dog. In at number two, it's a new entry for Dusty Shelbyville, which means... Britain's number one. The highest new entry, and this week's chart music number one, Spiteful Armoured Bollock. (laughs) Wow. Oh, what a chart that is. Very eventful. So many new entries, so many new entries. Yes. Turbulent times. Recognition at last for flaky pastry. <laughs> Didn't want to come into the top of the pop studio though because it was a bit too, bit too far out yeah. for them. Mm. Yeah. Great musicianship. They don't take themselves too seriously either. <laughs> <laughs> Frumpy Pompe. Well, obviously, you know, uh, Legs and Co. If uh, Hyacinth Bouquet was every member. Of. <laughs> <laughs> Dusty Shelbyville. Well, there we go. Yeah. And uh, spiteful armor bollock. That's that's proper doom metal, isn't it? Yeah, I can't. Mm. It's a Indu- industrial novelty hit. <laughs> <laughs> just cash. They've it got in. a band logo that you just can't read. And when you do <laughs> decipher it, it says something else entirely. Yeah, with an umlaut on the O in bollock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which one though? Oh, they're all good. Yeah. <laughs> So this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to February the 14th, 1985. We've walked down this road before, haven't we, Neil? We have, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we were confronted by Opus. (laughs) It's fair to say that all of a sudden, in the no man's land between Band-Aid and Live Aid, we're being bombarded with pop at this time, aren't we? Yeah, we're up to our necks in it. There's Whistle Test, which has been moved to mid-evening and has knobbed off all the beardy progos for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more pop artists. The rock and roll year starts in 1985. Uh, so does the Golden Oldie Picture Show. Oh, great. Over on ITV, there's Razzmatazz for the kiddies. If you turn the knob to Channel 4, you know, the tube's in its third series. There's also the other side of the tracks with Paul Gambaccina, uh, Airsay with Nicky Horn and Gary Crowley. Um, we're not too far away from the rocks there. And the chart show. Hmm. So, you know, Top of the Pops is getting a bit crowded there for him, isn't it? Well, very much so. And, and that's exactly what this, what this episode shows, I think. It's mad, this episode. And, and 
You know, it um, really is. kind of previous, the previous episode that we saw from 85, I came out of it with my traditional opinion intact, i.e. that 85 was a fucking horrible year. Um, you know, much like 75, yeah. much like all these mid-decade points tend to be. Um, but yes. in a weird way, this episode, I, I know we always have this argument on chart music, best year for pop, and I'm certainly not going to start arguing that 85 was a great year for pop. But in a way... I kind of I would almost show this as an episode that exemplifies all that's great and shit about the eighties in a way more than say an episode mm. from eighty one or eighty two because episodes from eighty one they're all full of good yeah. stuff and that's not really what it was like. Uh, this episode no. gets that perfect balance of being a pop fan, i.e., stuff that you're rapturous about, but lots of stuff that you feel betrayed by, angry about, and annoyed about, and, and uh, it's a really interesting episode. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like nineteen eighty four was the hinge between the early eighties and the bad eighties, mm. but nineteen eighty five it was when the bad eighties really kicked in. But there's still a fair bit of good music in the charts, and certainly in this particular Top of the Pops. Uh, mm. But it's funny how much of that good music feels like a bit of a holdover. Um, it's like it's following trails, which were laid post-punk mm. and were about to be blasted into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. There's not a lot of great 1985 music that is unmistakably 1985 music, like something new. You know, yeah. but It was a weird time, wasn't it? It was a weird... I mean, I remember this period really well. And, I mean, I was 12 when this episode went out and deeply entrenched in my newfound opinions. And <laughs> this period is really sharp in my memory. And it it really did feel like the end of the old world. Like On the, on the one hand, you had the end of the miners' strike, which is about a fortnight away at this point, yeah. which made it clear that those old dreams were over and done with. And on the other hand, this was also the last possible moment that you could sort of wear a navy blue blazer on Concord with a pocket square and sip champagne. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that old kind of success, right? It was, mm. uh, everything was changing beyond recognition and the new rules were being set in socio-political terms by Thatcherism and in cultural terms by America. Yeah. And you see a lot of it in this, that the the good stuff tends to be the, the dying embers of the British pop boom of the early mm. 80s. And mm. a lot of the bad stuff is blowing in across the Atlantic. Um, yeah. The only consolation at the time was that that particular 70s bleakness was finally going away, mm. right? And uh, it's not that the mid-80s weren't a bleak time, but it was different, right? In terms of what things looked and smelt like, it, there was an improvement. And British food was just beginning its slow climb towards acceptability and... You know, in a lot of ways, Britain yeah. was going backwards on social issues and stuff, but it was also becoming a less insular and less old-fashioned place uh, mm. in a lot of other Yeah, ways. this was a time when pasta was um, an actual food item yeah. in a British kitchen as opposed to a display yeah. object yeah, yeah. Yeah. in and, a jar. And you'd see a baguette and stuff wow. like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but there was a trade-off because... Uh, hang on, Taylor, French steak. French oh, steak. French, yeah. <laughs> French steak. Yeah. But there was a there was a trade off because yeah on the one hand you had this feeling that even if you were poor you no longer felt like you were living in an Eastern Bloc country, but on the other hand you no longer felt like you were living in a culture of ideas. Mm. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like that had yeah. gone. That was finished. That the that post war wave of socially politically and, and artistically radical thought. Uh, was over and from now on the essential philistinism of britain was no longer one side of a culture war 
it was a culture. And after this, you could do great things as an individual, but it wouldn't be part of anything bigger. Mm. You would just do it and go home. And as far as Top of the Pops goes round about this time, I mean, it's settled down a bit from the Yellow Hurl era. The event-driven aspect of Top of the Pops, it seems to be finally behind us because this is Valentine's Day, but we're not going to get Dave Lee Travis hanging from the fucking lighting gantry with a bow and arrow. (laughs) Thank fuck. (laughs) But it's fair to say, and, uh, you know, we've got to say this right now, if you thought the last episode was long pop craze youngsters, oh, wait till you fucking get this one. We have got a very long day ahead of us, (laughs) let me tell you. Because Top of the Pops are just throwing the fucking kitchen sink at this episode, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. everything's in. It's jam-packed. You you really didn't know there was so much in it. It's, yeah, mm. it's going to be a long... It's really hot and sunny outside. I'm sat with all the cu- uh, curtains closed. I'm sat with all the windows shut to keep the noise of kids outside from coming in. It's like, by, by the time we finish this, I'm going to look like Al Pacino halfway through Dog Day <laughs> Afternoon. <laughs> if he was going rather grey. <laughs> so let's not fanny about pop craze youngsters. Avante! My mate bought a toaster. We go through celebrities' Amazon purchase histories so you don't have to. Keep calm and love Dom Jolly, novelty key ring, yeah, and fridge that. magnets. Yeah, I love that. The G-spot. <laughs> the good vibrations, guys. Green dot laser sight rifle gun scope. I bought that quite a lot of times, I think. Right, okay. The sex doctor's guide to keeping it hot. Ah, oh, interesting. Did another child come along nine months later? Yeah. <laughs> Loads of great apps up now and new ones dropping every Monday. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster from Great Big Al. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week, the civil servant Clive Pontin is about to resign from the Ministry of Defence after leaking documents about the sinking of the Belgrano. Oh, you remember resignations? Yeah. Them are the days. Meanwhile, Michael Heseltine, the current Defence Secretary, is pelted with flour, eggs and stink bombs at Glasgow University. Staff at a hospital in Dulwich are instructed to burn their work clothes and have blood tests after an aged patient is discovered in a ward. Ian Botham has been fined £100 at Scunthorpe Crown Court for possession of two grams of cannabis. Quite right, disgraceful. The first prosecution for driving a Sinclair C5 whilst under the influence of alcohol has taken (laughs) place in Whitehall. 
What, someone got really pissed and thought it was a good idea to buy a C5? Yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't prosecute that bloke, because let's face it, he was only endangering himself. <laughs> the death watch for Konstantin Chernenko ramps up when a prominent Soviet heart doctor cuts short a visit to Cleveland. He would die three weeks later. George Best is denied a day out from fraud open prison by the governor to appear in a video for Junior's latest single, which features Junior having a five-a-side match with the likes of Osvaldo Ardiles, Glenn Hoddle and Garth Crooks. It all sounds like he's, he's actually picking up a blank passport for Inky Stevens under the auspices of genial Harry Grout, but I'm sure yes. it was all above board. <laughs> Definitely, yes. <laughs> An episode of the LWT show South of Watford, which concentrates on leather and rubber fetishware shops with scenes of arse whipping and whatnot has been pulled at the last minute by John Burt as he feels it's a bit too strong for Londoners. <laughs> Dick James, on behalf of the writers of the Barry Manilow single Can't Smile Without You, are suing George Michael for ripping the tune off for the recent Wham! single Last Christmas. The case is later settled out of court. But the big news this week is that rumours continue to persist about a satellite link-up concert tentatively called Live Aid to take place on June the 6th at Wembley Arena and Madison Square Gardens. Yeah, sounds like it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If only that had happened. On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Mick Jagger. On the cover of Smash Hits, The Power Station. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. And over in America, the number one single is Careless Whisper by George Michael. And the number one LP is Like a Virgin by Madonna. So, boys, what were we doing in February of 1985? Well, I think our age, Taylor, because I was 12 as well when this episode came out. And, and, you know, like you, I'm sure, I was an appallingly precocious little cunt. Um, But what's also becoming apparent to me in 85 is that I'm becoming entirely, at least culturally, colonised by American stuff, from from telly to literature to film to music. And film changes its nature anyway at this point, not because of the films being made, but because we have video shots now. And and a lot of us have video, you know, recorders. Um, so we, uh, and also because we're, I don't know, I was 12 going on 13, I was moving away from kind of shared cultural experiences to solitary cultural experiences, basically. I wasn't listening right. to music or watching films with people that much. Do you know what I mean? Or through the conduit of my elder sister. It was more accessing stuff myself way more. And, and, and that ties in really with, it, it was a latchkey year for me. My parents were working a lot, 85. So a very latchkey life and getting, getting ourselves out and getting yourselves through three bus journeys to school and everything, to getting yourselves home and everything. And you'd spend a lot of time alone. I mean, I remember Christmas Day, 85, um, I didn't even see my parents till about eight o'clock at night because they were both working. What, were they elves or something? No, no, no. <laughs> they just, my dad was working away on Christmas Day and my mum uh, just had the, the day and night shift at the old people's home. So I just didn't see her much that right. day. And I just remember waking up. I got Sly and the Family Stone. There's a riot going on. 
um, for, for my present. Fucking hell, get you, Neil. Oh, I was a stuck-up little bastard. But I mean, look, um, you know, I remember waking up and eating an entire box of Just Brazils uh, before about eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> and then just throwing up for the rest of the day. So, you know, at that age, I didn't want to hang around with my sister. And as a 16-year-old, she definitely didn't want to hang out with me. It's a family affair. <laughs> I didn't like Just Brazils because it was just like more nut and less chocolate. Yeah, but they're lovely, man. When your mum um, was wrapping up the Just Brazils for Christmas, Neil, did she did she nick one and then push the remainder together like in the other? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. No, she didn't. No, she wrapped them up completely. Good I mean, for her. Truth be told, they weren't for me. They were just for the house. But I ended up scoffing the lot and just throwing <laughs> up for the rest of the day. So, yeah. But, I mean, that's the thing. Age 12, 13... Um, you know, you are making your identity at that point. So so yeah. the library, the record shop, all of these places become hugely important. And new bits of the record shop and new bits of the library open up to you mm. a little bit. So it, it's a really, you know, uh, normally early 80s episodes, even though, you know, I was cognizant, obviously I was in double figures in terms of my age. It's still a bit foggy for me, whereas 85 is crystal clear because I remember becoming, in a sense who I am and also you make that decision you don't know you make that decision but you kind of make that decision when you're 12 13 as to who you're kind of going to be and and kind of I don't mean job wise I just mean you decide right I'm going to stand a little bit off to the side here do you know what I mean I'm not going to belong I'm going to look at old stuff etc so very very important year 85 as reflected in this episode it was it it brought back a hell of a lot of memories Mm. yeah it was it was a big year for me as well because it was the year we moved down south and although this was already happening in Kidderminster, that sort of put the seal on it, that this was like the time when we properly made the leap from upper working class to lower middle class. Through the barricades. Yeah, well, <laughs> people often think those those two things are the same, right? When you say uh, upper working class, low, like it's C sharp and D flat, you know, like it's the <laughs> same note, but it just called different things depending on which angle you're looking at it from. Um it's not. It's there's there's a there's a, a big difference between those two social groups. It's just just not, and this is key, just not as big a difference as people making that jump themselves used to believe. Um, mm. I mean, upper working class really just meant we, you know, didn't live in a council house. Um, you know, Newman knives and forks, and we had a colour telly <laughs> and mm. a and a painting on the wall. It was two leopard cubs with their mother, painting by an unnamed artist. Um, And then all of a sudden, like there were more books in the house, some read, some not. Um, We switched from the Sun to the Daily Mail. Um, Plates from the Franklin Mint began appearing on the (laughs) Welsh dresser. What was on them? It was was a Chelsea flower show, I think. Like flowers from the Chelsea Mm. flower show. So what Elvis then? No, 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 no. That would have that would have been a downward move, Al. Come yes. Um, and the, the the leopard cubs were replaced with a cheap print of um, Turner's "The Fighting Temeraire," uh, tugged nice. to her last birth to be broken up, which is a painting I can't even glance at now without a shudder, having spent so long staring into that golden sky while trying to blot out the sound of another bollocking from my parents. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but it's an interesting class jump to make. It's the most common class jump to make, even now when social mobility is very restricted. And if you're a passenger in a family that does it and you've got your eyes open, it teaches you 
quite a lot about quite a lot, including the fact that money is not the key to it. Because we had less money after you moved down south, um, even though my dad was getting paid more for the simple reason that we had to sell our house in Kidderminster and move into another new build semi-detached house on an estate, which was almost identical but cost twice as much because mm. it was in the southeast. So uh, uh, all the money went on a mortgage for years and years and years. We were completely skint. Um, so, yeah, the intricacies of the English class system became one of several things I got obsessed with around the age of 13. And like all those other things, in the end, it did me no good at all. <laughs> Paintings of big cats, man. That's yeah. really, yeah. I had, I had the tiger one, uh, two tiger cubs and its mum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everyone had these things. But it, it's that point, they disappear, those things. They, they just yeah. stop. They just stop being seen, yeah. But I always knew, right, even before we started putting on airs, I always knew that we were just one notch on the social uh, on the social chart above my nan because she had a picture of uh, big cats. But at least ours was finished as though it was a real painting, whereas hers, <laughs> the cats were made out of velvet, like uh, or, or probably velour, um, mm. sort of on like a almost like a fuzzy felt. It's not even more, it, wasn't, mm. it was like a fuzzy felt board, so I want to put a frame around it and I'll get on the fucking wall. And I'm <laughs> thinking, this is something that we, we would no longer do as a mm. household, hang that on the wall. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what paintings we had in our ass and nothing. Green lady. I mean, if it didn't come off the round, my dad was still a removal man. Mm. Yeah. And so if something was being lobbed out, uh, the house he was moving out, he'd bring it back. I, th- I think the only ornament he brought back was a plaster Mackerson bottle that he got off the round, and he actually wanted it in the house. And my mum was dead against it. <laughs> and then he, he tried to put it in the garden, and she was absolutely dead set against that as well. So yeah. he ended up getting lobbed out when he was at work. Mm. And then he, he was going out one morning, and uh, the, the bin wagon came round, and it had the Mackerson bottle on, on the front grill of the van and he was furious <laughs> and the only new things we had in the house at this time were all technology mm. you know a video mm. recorder which meant the only thing that looked like books in our house was those videotape cases oh yeah that looked like old books oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with a sheet of gold leaf so you could write i don't know bottle boys <laughs> series two <laughs> on it or something like that and a microwave right you know, a, a resolutely working class yeah. family. No no time for fripperies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you can't record Only Fools and Horses or um, Cook Your Tea a bit faster, we weren't interested. Mm. Yeah. I think my parents used this time to reassert their cultural identity a bit because I remember Indian stuff starting to turn up on my walls. Not my walls, but the walls of the house a bit more. A few more yeah. weird goddesses with 20 heads. And oh, you know, yeah, they're brilliant. Though. Yeah, and a few more, a few more dancing, uh, dancing ladies, embroidered ladies with their tits out, things like that. So excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember going around my Asian mates' house for the first time when I was about seven, mm. and they had all that stuff on the wall, and mm. I thought it was fucking brilliant. It is great. I mean, you know, th- so why were we got this in our house? Well, like elephants with big swords, fucking killing people. Yeah, that's what you want. Well, quite. And women with like eight arms riding on tigers. Yeah. yeah, decapitating people. Yeah, all of that imagery is fantastic. And and uh, you know, I can drive up Folsom Road now and buy those images untouched, uncut, unchanged. That is a style of art that has remained the same forever. Oh, you just and rightfully you so. just reminded me of something when I was a, <laughs> when I was about I think fourteen. 
and I was into like psychedelic music and stuff. I got one of these, <laughs> I can't remember where I got it from. And it was like, yeah, it was like a, a guy riding a chariot pulled by like mm. eight tigers or something through the clouds. <laughs> um, and I put it on the wall in my bedroom. And about two days later, my dad sat me down to give me a talk about how I shouldn't take drugs. <laughs> Quite I had that as well with my dad, uh, but it was because I had a, a red light bulb. <laughs> he came oh. back from the pub and went fucking mental. <laughs> Says a fucking you're making the house look like a fucking knocking shop. You're on drugs. <laughs> red light bulbs, you could get them, yeah. and they did have that little tinge of exotica to your room. Yeah, yeah. If you were if you weren't going to be allowed joysticks yeah. uh-huh. or patchouli oil in the house, then a red light bulb. <laughs> Strange times. Strange times. I'm still at sixth form. Uh, well, I say I'm at sixth form, but I'm bunking off by now. I'm just aimlessly wandering the wastelands of Top Valley, Nottingham. Just felt an absolutely shit time to be 16. <laughs> you know, I've been constantly told not to not to do drugs or have sex while I'm not finding any drugs or any sex lying about. <laughs> just basically walking about in a green MA1 flight jacket with a cold up doll sticker. Yeah. Wondering what the fuck I was supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? This was like, this was supposed to be the golden years of my life. Mm, And it's like, well, is something going to happen now? Did you have a look you were going for in 85, Al? Because this is something that I was trying to remember what I was aiming for. I mean, I was only bloody 12, but... Well, I I was still just about the last mod in Nottingham at this time. So all I was wearing, really, was the stuff I'd bought from London. Mm. Because I'd be going on me excursions. The highlight of my life at this time was round about just after Christmas and just after my birthday, where I'd just rake up as much money as I could, go down to London in the morning and spend all day there just buying clothes and stuff that I couldn't get in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah. No, I can actually see myself now wearing... Like these dog tooth check trousers from Carnaby Street, or the Prince of Wales check ones, mm. uh, a oh. pair of black loafers, or no, 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 the Oxblood loafers. I, I got them first from mm-hmm. that shop where Madness got their dogs. Uh, I'm wearing a green jacket with a Colnock doll sticker on one side, and then later on, I'd have a, a Tampa Bay Buccaneers patch <laughs> on the left hand side because I, I really liked American football. I was mm. obsessed by it, and. Wearing one of the two Judge Dredd t-shirts I had at the time, which didn't feature Judge Dredd on them. One of them was Pogugly and the Buglies, uh, the, the, the punk band, mm. uh, and it had Get Ugly over the top. And the other one I wore, prob- I think it was later on actually, was Arnold Stodgman, who was um, a, a champion eater. Who, who died during the World uh, Eating Championships, which, of course, was illegal. Yeah. He died because he uh, he went for the ton. He tried uh, to eat a ton of food when there was no need to. And uh, he, he saw this massive pie, and he just said, give me the pie. And his manager said, no, no, don't you don't need to. And he said, I said, give me the pie. And so he had a T-shirt of Arnold Stodgman, this big fat fucker mm. with all just food coming right down his chin and onto his chest and uh in a frankie goes to hollywood style it said underneath arnie say give me the pie (laughs) so so that was me at the time it's a shame he didn't survive they could have put him on at live aid (laughs) been about as tasteful as bob geldof's performance yes (laughs) it was always a thrilling bit of the guinness book of records the eating record stuff because it was always mention of trencher men like we were meant to know who they were (laughs) or what that meant 
a trencherman's <laughs> appetite. At least your ensemble, though, Al. That sounds vaguely coordinated. Um, yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. Because I was confused. Obviously, I was only twelve, so you, you'd kind of you'd wear this shit that your parents got you, i.e., like a jacket with turbo on the sleeve or something like that. <laughs> and, but, but I'd combine it with just bright ideas that I'd get from a pot video or something. So I'd, I'd watch some pot video, or I'd even watch fucking Wimbledon, and I'd like the idea of headbands. So I'd grab one of my dad's ties, tie it around my head, and go into town like that. And <laughs> what the fuck was I thinking? But ho hum. <laughs> I had a pair of those uh, Prince of Wales check Carnaby Street trousers, um, but the cut wasn't very good on them. Um, no. So I thought I was going to look like one of the small faces, but I actually looked like one of the black and white Doctor Who's. <laughs> <laughs> I really wished I had an older brother at this time to just show me what to do, or at the very least, hand me down things. Mm. I think when I was about 10 or 11 and getting bullied at school, I started putting around that I had a, an imaginary older brother who was fucking rock. He was called Ande, and I actually put it around the playground that he was so hard. He was the only white man who was allowed into the Gurkhas. <laughs> so yeah, I really, I really needed Ande, the imaginary older brother at this time. How bizarre! How bizarre! I'm, I'm, my cousin, um, at this time, he wrote a piece about his family for his school. They were asked to write a piece about their family. And he, right. he created this sister that he had called Doris. Um, <laughs> and he's called Hershed, and his actual brother's called Sundeep. You know, good Indian names. So where he came up with Doris from, fuck only knows. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, fantasy siblings, it must have been a thing. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a problem for me sister. Uh, she knew what to do. You know, she'd just basically uh, hang around with lads who had nice Tachini tracksuit tops and kind of, like, get them off them. I'm mm. cold. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> right about this time, actually, my mum got it into her that she would get some tracksuit tops made for her and uh, her, her best mate. And they were both called Tracer. And whoever made it made the absolute fucking error of, of doing their own logo which was a T in a circle. And my sister went fucking mental. I can't wear this. I can't wear this. People think I've, I've got a knockoff Ticini tracksuit. Yeah. And my mum couldn't understand. So there was a good week where I was just sitting in the living room minding my own business while my little sister and my mum were just screaming abuse at each other because mm. neither could understand. Yeah. This is the time when I'm aware of labels, but it seems to be something that everyone else is doing. Everyone else is getting Lacoste yeah. shirts and Sergio Ciccini and Lacoste Sportif. It's the age of the headbag, isn't it? Yes. In, in a big way. But I, I stuck religiously to my little rucksack and I never got anything labelled up, um, unfortunately. No. I had the shit as the alternatives <laughs> instead. I mean, music-wise, I'm already digging into the second-hand record shops and record fairs, but I'm just casting around just, just for anything that wasn't Radio 1 or Radio Trent or everything. I mean, by this time, I was even listening to Laser 558. Do you remember that? Oh, Yeah. I remember a big article in Smash Hits about how they were going to take over from Radio 1 because yeah. they were so amazing. And then when you actually listen to it, they had the, they played the same records as Radio <laughs> 1. It was just the same. It was a very Dave Lee Travis-like playlist, wasn't it? I mean, mm. the, yeah, idea, yeah. the idea was that, you know, it was much more music and the, the DJs didn't prattle on. 
But the only reason people wanted to listen to it was to hear American DJs and stuff. <laughs> mm, yeah. I bought one of these massive radios out of a Daily Mirror classifieds that could pick up, you know, it was a really powerful radio that picked yeah. up stations all over the world in the vague hope that I'd be able to pick up, you know, American radio or something, <laughs> which of course never happened. So, you know, you'd listen to Radio Moscow and, yeah, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff just because it was something else. And then Laser 558 came along. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to this. And yeah, yeah. you would hear a lot of prints. They were massively into print. Yeah. But along with all the prints, you would also get a lot of Eric Clapton and all this mm. 70s American soft rock shit yeah. Yeah. That, that I really wasn't into. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. I think in general, there was just more available. Uh, in comparison to uh, the cultural glut that we can all sort of access now, it's, it was nothing. But video definitely made a difference to me. And, and, and yeah, yes. 85, I mean, 85 is also the year, I think I said previously, where albums start bossing my listening a bit more than singles. So it's all yeah. about Frankie and The Cure that year to a big extent. But also radio listening beyond Laser 558. I'm starting now that my, my radio listening is in the evening, not just on a Sunday after the chart. So, so you know, I am starting to listen to things like Janice and Peely and stuff like that, which is expanding things a yeah. lot. I mean, I'm looking now at the 1985 wing of my record collection, mm. and, oh, it's very sparse indeed. There's, <laughs> you know, our favourite shop by the Style Council, Rum Sodomy and the Lash by the Pogues, a go-go compilation, 19 by Paul Hardcastle, oh, Strike by the Enemy Within, and a couple of Redskin singles. Yeah, I think I bought my first, first few 12 inches that year, um, 85. It's a poor crop. Yeah, but I bet you, I Al, there was shit tons of stuff, old stuff that you were listening to in 85, because oh, 85 was yeah. so rubbish in a lot of ways. I mean, Radio by LL Cool J comes out this year. It does. But it would be a good year before I picked up on mm-hmm. it, so... You know, there's good shit happening in 1985, but it's not getting into my tab. Yeah, but Al, seriously, how many people in this country knew about LL Cool J or Schooly D? Or even Run DMC, you know, at that time. We didn't, but that was going on. So, as is the style of chart music, here's the moment when we stop and rummage through some of the cardboard boxes and pull out an issue of the music press from this week. And this time I've gone for the February the 16th edition of the NME. Shall we leave through, chaps? Yeah, Hmm. let's have a look. On the cover is a photo of a knee poking through some ripped jeans and the headline, Old Punk, New Punk, Rip It Up and Start Again. I think the enemies had enough of the music of 1985. (laughs) In the news... The main story this week, according to the enemy in any case, is about their current row with Mick Jagger's publicists over extracts of an interview they were intending to run this week but have now pulled after Jagger's press people claimed he should have been given full clearance on it first. They claim it was a pretty boring interview in any case. Well, it is the enemy in 1985, so it probably would have been. Gallup have announced that they will be installing their chart return machines in a handful of specialist reggae shops after Trojan Records complained that their reissue of 5446 was my number by Toots and the Maytals last year sold 60,000 copies without getting any chart action at all. A bootleg of a song John Lennon demoed in the summer of 1980, the Bob Dylan diss track Serve Yourself, has been spotted in certain record shops in London. 
An investigation conducted by Gavin Martin concludes that Fred Seaman, Lennon's former PA, who is currently on probation for nicking assorted personal bits and bobs, could be behind it. The article concludes with a footnote. Readers are reminded that as bootlegs are illegal, NME is unable to enter into any correspondence or phone calls regarding this record. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard that song? It's typical weirdo Oedipal Lennon. It's all mothers with him. It's very creepy. This UK tour is announced for the Associates, Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five, the Sisters of Mercer, Test Department and David Johansson. That should have been one tour. Yes. Just 15 <laughs> minutes each, all travelling in the same bus. Yeah. Value for money. And Billy Mann reports a shocking development from Liverpool, the reintroduction of flares. <laughs> It's actually more of a boot cut thing with Lee and Wrangler jeans and cords with 19 inch bottoms being snapped up across the northwest and a club night with a tribute band called Ground Pig who play Simon and Garfunkel and Lindisfarne covers and are becoming very popular across Liverpool. Oh dear man. It's starting. It's disgusting isn't it? Because I mean at this time all the shady lads round our way started wearing farras. And it was like, you'd look at them and go, they're, they're, they're flares. What the fuck are you wearing them for? Yeah. And they also made you have a really massive arse as well. <laughs> Farrers. They were fucking horrible. My dad had a pair. Mm. And that's why I didn't wear them. As soon as my dad's got some, I don't want to wear them. Yeah. In the interview section, Bieber Koff manages to spin out a very brief interview with the Jesus and Mary chain into a centre spread feature with a big photo of the lads sitting on the floor looking all sulky, taking up an entire page. He attempts to trace a link between Elvis and them while they say things like, we don't want people to come away from our gigs and think, hmm, not bad, and point out that they don't like bands who tune their guitars on stage. Penny Real bumps into Barrington Lever in Stoke Newington and they reason about the reggae scene in London, his forthcoming push into the mainstream and why he covered How Your Panty Get Wet under the name <laughs> Eckel and Jekyll while saying seen a lot because that's what you've got to do with reggae artists. You've also got to reason with them, uh, which makes them sound really unstable and potentially violent. I that hate persists that. with reggae artists, especially with uh, like people like Lee Perry. There has to be the announcing first few paragraphs that he's a bit crazy and a bit mad and we eventually got some sense out of him. Matt Snow and Barney Hoskins link up with Joey and D.D. Ramon for a chat about the good old days and why everything is so rubbish now. Joey reckons it's because kids these days are so shit scared about nuclear war that they don't give themselves the chance to live for today. He can't see the point of Duran Duran and Culture Club and points out that he's never been a conservative, while DD mentions that Debbie Harry is currently in a bad way. David Quanting drops in on the monochrome set, who have just released the single Jacob's Ladder, and he's shocked that he's being played by Mike Reed. They try to wriggle out of Quantic's accusation that all their singles sound the same and, like the Ramones, bemoan the rubbishness of pop in 1985. I've got a few friends who are school teachers, and the information I get is that kids only seem to listen to two bands, 
Wham and Duran Duran, says lead singer Bed. I recall when I was at school, there were a million bands, a million directions. <laughs> Meanwhile, Danny Kelly sits down with the Kane gang to discuss the rumours that have been swirling around the biz about them. They claim that no Judy Zook satin tour jackets were used to get their last two singles into the charts, and the rumour that their recent gig in Liverpool only attracted 27 punters <laughs> is bollocks. They're more keen to talk about their new LP and to also have a moan about the state of pop. Everything is geared up to beauty, press-ups and break dancing, says Paul Woods. If I wanted to see that sort of thing, I wouldn't go to a gig. I'd go to a circus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we saw Spandau Ballet on TV when we were in Germany. Three of them were stripped to the waist while Hadler led the audience clapping. <laughs> and this is the band that started with all the arty manifestos about breaking the mould or whatever. They've become the status quo of pomp rock. It's true though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the single reviews this week are conducted by Stuart Cosgrove and he has three singles of the week. Doing Bad, Jamming in the Big M Town by Robert and Tom Sanders, which is an urgent and restless surge of party funk. You Got Me Hypnotised by CC, a soul ballad which is tragically great. And You Turn Me On by Bruni Pagan, a Latino cover of the Rick James tune, which is also produced and arranged by him. Anything that two-bit tosser Prince does, Rick James does better says Cosgrove. <laughs> That's proper old school, though, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like, however wrong it is, you've got to let old Cosgrove have his head there because that is authentic old school thinking. <laughs> he really believes that with his in his loafers, with his closely shorn neck. The double A side, Drop the Bomb, Pump Me Up by Trouble Funk, is gleefully seized upon as the real sound of urban America. The former is certain to cause angst at your local CND, while the latter is a nod to the block parties of the Bronx. Fucking tune. Both of them. Hmm. War Dance by Funkmeister, the latest attempt to meld verbals to beats in the wake of No Sellout by Keith LeBlanc, this time utilising speeches from Hitler, Churchill and Lord Haw Haw, is routine, according to Cosgrove, <laughs> who points out that the BBC, who own much of the original audio, have demanded that 2p per side is to be donated to the British Legion. <laughs> However... It's a coat down for the minor strike rap by Michael Rosen, <laughs> which is about as helpful to the strike as Hilda's new lodger. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> oh, I've got to hear that now. No, I want to keep it as a, 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 in my imagination, I think. Contract of the Heart by Spelt Like This is given equally short shrift. The three-layered record sleeve is so complicated, it took 20 minutes to get the record out, only to discover a very ordinary pop song. Yeah, it's all hype. <laughs> Money Changes Everything by Cindy Lauper is brilliant rubbish. You're the Inspiration by Chicago is predictably uninspired. A cover of I Want to Know What Love Is by the New Jersey Mass Choir reminds the reviewer that Foreigner is still the best argument I've heard for xenophobia <laughs> and High mm. on You by Survivor 
tastes of phlegm. <laughs> In the LP review section, the main review is given over to What Else Meets is Murder by the Smiths. Paul DeNoya thinks it's dead good. After calling Morrissey the natural successor to George Formbear and meaning it as a compliment, he proclaims the new LP is the equal of the last two and could even be better in time, thanks to Johnny Moore starting to come to the fore. Although the title track won't make him change his diet, Denoyer says pop propaganda has really come so powerful. No. <laughs> it's also a meaty thumbs up for VU, the long-awaited compilation of outtakes recorded by the Velvet Underground for MGM before they were dropped. Ten tales for everybody, ten songs to shake the world, writes Matt Snow. VU belongs right up there between the third album and Loaded, a masterpiece and a good friend. Adopt it today. They're just try and ignore the disgusting 1985 remixes on every track, mm. including putting mm. gated reverb on Mo Tucker's drum tracks to make it sound. No, modern. yeah, they did. It's like creeping up on someone while they're asleep and dressing them in Ray Bans and a shiny suit jacket with the sleeves rolled yeah. into the elbows. It's like someone thought Velvet Underground fans wanted to hear that. You know what I mean? They were trying to make it sound 80s, weren't they? Because yeah. I remember, that's got, um, I can't stand it anymore on it, hasn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. and it's got this big, thumpy, echoey 80s sound. And yeah. I remember hearing it in 85, because my sister was a big VU head at the time. I just think, God, this sounds so modern. And now I listen to it, I just think, this doesn't really sound that good, actually. Yeah, well, it sounds really dated now. Yeah, yeah. You, you just, yeah they've yeah. Put, since put out the 1969 mix, and the drums quite properly, you know, sound like she's hitting mm. a sofa, and it's uh, it sounds much better. But yeah, it's they, it, it's I don't know what the thinking was. It's like they thought maybe a 1985 mass audience might hear "Temptation Inside Your Heart" and mistake it for "In the Air Tonight" and buy it by accident. <laughs> The bad and low-down world of the Kane Gang by the Kane Gang is an attempt to catalogue the tedium of small-town UK in much the same way as Uncle Bruce sketches his worm's-eye view of living in the USA, according to Adrian Thrills. But the band's brand of earthy truth and justice testifying becomes dull and repetitive when stretched over an album. Never. Talk About the Weather by Red Lorry Yellow Lorry is as conservative as anything by Toto and as cliched as the Thompson Twins, but Matt Snow would still play it again and hopes they get rid of their rubbish name. While former Skids lead singer and current Channel 4 presenter Richard Jobson's second solo LP, An Afternoon in Company, is the first thing he's ever done that Jim Shelley actually likes. The gig guide this week. Well, David could have seen 999, UK subs and the exploited at the Lyceum, Mikey Dredd at Dingwalls, the Pogues at Enfield Middlesex Polytechnic, Shalimar at the Dominion Theatre, Time UK at the Marquee and Phil Collins's six-night stand at the Royal Albert Hall, but probably didn't. <laughs> oh, which one of them would David least want to go to? I think the, f- the first one. He'd probably get his nephew to, to record the Pogues for him <laughs> <laughs> and listen to it down the phone. Taylor could have seen Joan Armour trading at the NEC, Chumbawamba at the Darleston Theatre Foundry, Stigma at the Red Lion, 
Joe Boxers at the Digbeth Civic Hall, or George Melly and the Feet Warmers at Birmingham University. Ooh. Neil could have seen Misery in Roots at Coventry Poly, Killing Joke at Warwick University, The Blow Monkeys and then Jericho also at Warwick University, or treated himself to a night out in Wolverhampton to see Chaz and Dave at the Grand Theatre. Oh man, my cut runneth mm. over. Sarah could have seen King at Hull University, Bad Manners and Amazulu at Leeds University, or Mark Riley and the Creepers at Leeds Beer Keller. Al could have seen Killing Joke at Rock City, the Commodores at the Royal Albert Hall, the Membranes at the Garage, Dawn Trader at the Hearty Goodfella, or gone to Chris Needhamland to see the Rubettes and the Glitter Band at Loughborough University. And Simon could have seen the Boomtown Rats at Cardiff University, Chaz and Dave at Cardiff St David's Hall, and fuck all else. In the letters page this week, Paolo Hewitt is at the controls and he's had to deal with a backwash of responses to a letter printed last week which contended that Band-Aid was a cod and the real beneficiaries were the evil pop stars who took part in it. The star letter is written by John Halloran of Cambridge who believes that we can chastise Bob Geldof only for raising a vast urgently needed amount of money by somewhat devious means. So Midjor thinks that the miners have a choice in their destiny as opposed to the Ethiopians who have no choice whether they starve or not, writes Tony Webb of Swansea. I, however, can choose whether or not to buy Ultravox records. I never have, and now I never will either. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Peter Coyne of the Sid Presley experience is well dischuffed by a gig review by Andrea Miller in Glasgow, who responded to their cover of Cold Turkey by writing, If I was a 16-year-old unemployed junkie, I'd resent some wanker with a record deal telling me about it. He he points out that they didn't have time to sound check as they had been on the tube that night and had only got to the venue half an hour before. The 750 or so people who were there that night demanded three encores and she didn't mention in her review that she had spoken to him after the gig and didn't call him a wanker to his face. Miller could never do what I do, but I could do her job standing on my head. How about it, Neil? Neil Spencer, current editor of The Enemy. Hewitt responds by stating that if he does want a job at the NME, he could start by removing the graffiti he wrote in the lift and the office toilets. I love that. Some wanker with a record deal. Like these children of privilege. The Sid Presley experience. Yes. They probably lived in a squat. You know what I mean? Oh, they've got a record. Yeah, with pint and milk records. They have to take the (laughs) tapes to the pressing plant themselves on a big bike like the goodies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sell out. Tony Parsons did the singles review page a fortnight ago and people are still queuing up to put the boot in. Rusty James of Brighton thinks it's nice that the old bastard still gamely struggles up to town to help the younger writers while smelling of nappies and sick. While Jan Laskowski of Ealing coats him down for saying that Funky Nassau was originally recorded by Beginning of the End and not Cool and the Gang. Fucking hell, Tony. 
Even Jeff Travis of Rough Trade gets stuck in, berating him for slagging off the label in a review of the June Brides when they're not even on Rough Trade. (laughs) (laughs) How long will the enemy continue to shout the praises of those dated rags, pathetically known as fanzines, says Edgar Rice Crispies of Leeds. The namby-pamby efforts currently circulated are either absolute shit or they're sub-enemy brothel sheets with every weedy hag trying to be your next chosen disciple. Hewitt responds by saying, Fair enough point, but wouldn't you be better actually writing to the people involved? You can find the addresses for Melody Maker and Sounds by ringing directory inquiries. Cheeky little fucker. Touché away. Surprised Paul Weller let him say that. (laughs) 44 pages, 45p. I never knew there was so much in it. Although not as much as usual, I find. (laughs) Pretty crap time to to be writing for the music press, it seems. Yeah. Just everyone's harking back to the past. Everyone's moaning about the present and doing nothing about it. But, you know, I mean, now I kind of want to be a optimist about 1985 and stick up for a little bit. But at the time, I remember feeling the same way as a Smash Hits reader that, yeah, things were shit. I mean, like when, when you read out most of that stuff in The Enemy, it was about things are awful now. How are we going to make things better or how are things going to get better? Mm. And Smash Hits didn't avowedly say that. But as a reader, you go from early 80s years where, I don't know, every other page had some weirdo on it to the smug face of Paul King looking at you. Mm. And, and you know, those same haircuts and that same sort of bland professionalism and expensiveness everywhere. Um, so it wasn't just the NME picking up on that. It was, it was everyone. And, and even things like the Jesus and Mary chain. You know, perhaps in another year, the Jesus and Mary chain, you know, might not have been so special. But I remember in 85, that and, you know, Psycho Candy and that being special moments and special things because they were genuinely something, you know, a suggestion that there might be something else going on Mm. um, than what was was usually popular at the time. So we were all in 85. We were simultaneously lost in the past because we had so much reconnaissance to catch up on and just appalled at the present mm. with, with these odd little glimmers. I'm glad I was sort of 12, 13. If I was 10, I would have just fully, wholly accepted the mainstream in a sense. Yeah. Um, but at the age of 12, 13, you can develop that little grain of resistance where you're looking elsewhere. I mean, yeah, I mean, the NME famously declared war on pop only five months earlier at a, a culture club gig. That, that Simon was at, I believe, in Birmingham. Mm. So, yeah, Simon's the Raggy Omar of music war correspondence there. Well done, Simon. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, they're already waving the white flag, aren't they, here? Yeah, I mean, it should have been the triumphant sort of tail end of new pop, in a sense. Um, mm. But it isn't quite that, uh, what's going on in 85. In fact, it's a, it's a kind of... Th- those bands, Culture Club, Duran, Wham, they had become monsters. They'd become so big... Yeah. That regardless of what you thought of their music, as as irrefutable and undeniable commercial facts, they just developed resentment mm. because they were always everywhere and obsequious and omnipresent. Um, yeah. And 85 certainly didn't feel 
like that. It didn't feel like that music resonated, really. Yeah, the ladder had already been pulled up even before Live Aid. Mm. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One commences at six in the morning with half an hour of CFAX, followed by a Valentine's Day breakfast time with special guest Richard Bryars. <laughs> when you think of romance, you immediately think of Richard Bryars, don't you? <laughs> Then it's an hour and a half of pages from CFAX, play school, and then two hours and 40 minutes of more CFAX. <laughs> That's more romantic than Richard Pryor's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After the news and regional news in your area, it's Pebble Mill at one in Bavaria. Ooh. It's another chance to see Bob Langley and Paul Coyer arsing about on skis in Garmisch Partenkirchen. Followed by Bagpuss, the afternoon show where Barbara Dixon looks at new initiatives for unemployed young adults in Derry and punk hairstyles. After another hour of pages from CFAX, it's regional news in your area, play school, the family ness, Tina Heath reads cycle star appealing tower in Jackanora, then it's Dog Tanyan and the Three Musker Hounds, Blue Peter, Dr. Kildare, the 6 o'clock news, regional news in your area, then Tomorrow's World examines the science behind kissing, and they've just finished the Paul Daniels quiz show, Odd One Out. (sighs) BBC Two kicks off at 6.55 with two hours of the Open University, and then 20 minutes of pages from CFAX. (laughs) Then they plunge into five hours and 40 minutes of schools and colleges programmes. Then at three o'clock, they unleash a two and a half hour CFAX data blast. (laughs) Then it's pride of place where the Marquis of Anglesey witters on about country houses. Then at six o'clock, the catfish and the shape changer have a falling out and the earthquakes in Monkey. Fucking yes. Then there's a cartoon, and they're currently an hour into the 1955 Gene Kenny and Sid Cerise musical, It's Always Fair Weather. ITV opens up at a quarter past six for TVAM. Then it's a two and a half hour splurge of schools programmes before The Little Green Man, Mooncat, The Sullivans, News at One, Regional News in Your Area, Falcon Crest, The Magazine Show Daytime, then the fashion-based soap opera Gems, Sons and Daughters, The Little Green Man Again, The Moomins, Sutter, The Educational Kids Show Words, 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 Danger Mass, Blockbusters, The News at 5.45, Regional News in Your Area, and Michael Knight is currently investigating the death of a racehorse in Knight Rider. Channel 4 starts at 2.25pm with The British at War, two hours of World War II propaganda films. Then after Countdown, it's Sabrina Fair, the 1954 Audrey Hepburn, Humphrey Bogart and William Holden rom-com, and they've just finished Channel 4 News. Boys, 12 years old, hoovering television into your eyes, no doubt. What's jumping out on that schedule for you? Oof. Well, I mean, Falcon Crest, the scene of my sexual awakening, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously what leaps out massively is all that fucking CFAX. Good Lord. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at these listings. There's a show, which you didn't mention, called Assaulted Nuts. Oh, that's yeah, later on. Tim Brooke Taylor, Cleo Rocos, and Daniel How Did Do It All Do It Peacock, also yes. responsible for Cave Girl. The closest thing we've ever seen to mm-hmm. a soft porn children's series. <laughs> it's like, I don't remember, who, put, who put those 
nuts together and assaulted them. (laughs) (laughs) So, chaps, I believe that we've laid the table properly and put the knives and forks in the right order for this episode of Top of the Pops, don't you? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll come back tomorrow with part two of Chart Music number 52. So, thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Oh, jeez. God bless you, Neil Kulkarne. Toodaloo, mate. Stay pop crazed. See you in a bit. <laughs> Chart Music. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.